Welcome to White Plains Baptist Church. It is good to see you. My name is Gary, and I joyfully serve as senior pastor here. And uh, if you're new to us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest this morning. You are an answer to prayer. I've been praying for you and your family and praying that God is working in your life and whatever's happening, that he would be using that to draw you to himself. And, uh, and so thank you for being here uh, as our guest. I hope that you find our church to be a warm and welcoming group of people. And this, this morning, it's going to be a, a tasty place to be because we have the feast happening in just a little bit. I am sort of in the way between us and our lunch, but um, we don't usually always eat after church, but when we do, we have a feast. So um, I didn't realize they were going to deliver like just a minute ago. So if you start smelling something, it's okay. We'll be able to eat it in just a moment. But uh, kids, it's good to see you guys here. It's always good seeing you here at church. Um, you know, the feast is to help us start to celebrate Thanksgiving. And so kids, I would like to have you think about, until, uh, until we eat here in a little bit, think about some things you're thankful for. And as you think about that, tell the folks up in Kids Church, and if you, you can find me after church near the dessert table, and I'd like to hear some of the things that you're thankful for. So if you can find me and, and let me know, that would be great. Um, kids, you're uh, going to be dismissed to go into the lobby and take out to Kids Church. Thank you guys for being here. Kids Church is for kids in kindergarten through fifth grade, and parents and grandparents, you are able to pick them up in the lobby after our service and before our feast. So as they're leaving, let me quickly remind you to grab those deacon nominations, uh, that form, uh, and as you think about and pray over who to nominate to be on the deacon uh, team next year, um, be in prayer for that, but also get their permission before you volunteer their name. Uh, just, just do them, that, that service. Uh, that way, when I call and let them know they've been nominated, it's not a surprise. Um, but do that. And then we're also, again, voting for Heather to be our treasurer uh, the beginning in January. So if you're a member, please grab those uh, ballots, um, and uh, that'll be good. But we're going to continue in our series in the letter of 1 Timothy. We've been calling this series Gospel centered godliness, being the church in the community. This morning we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2b through 10. Uh, and as we study through this letter, I've been trying to keep our focus on this call to godliness that's in the letter. It's throughout the letter, and it's clearly stated uh, many times it's, it's a reoccurring theme, godliness, in 1 Timothy. It's mentioned at least 10 times, and godliness is living as God would have you live under his authority. Godliness is living as God would have you live under his authority. And we're seeing that this call to godliness is to Timothy, to church pastors, and to church members. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's a call to the church and its leadership to live and worship in a way that proclaims the gospel. We proclaim the gospel to the church, that is, each other. We proclaim the gospel to the community around us. Our duty as Christians is to the gospel. It's important to note that this call to godliness is always a response to our salvation. It's never a cause of our salvation. You and I, we cannot work our way to God. That's not the gospel. We are only saved by grace through faith. Now, we are called and saved to do good works and we, to live a godly lifestyle and share the hope and faith that we have with others. 
Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2b through 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Those who do such fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray in response to what we just read. God, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the truthfulness that you have for us in your word. You are good to us so many ways, and one of those ways is the way you speak to us in the Bible. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the way that it points us to Jesus. Help us to live a life that reflects him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we've spent six weeks in Jude, and we're going to wrap up 1 Timothy next week after spending about 10 weeks in 1 Timothy in this letter. And this topic of false teacher and false teaching is all throughout Jude, and it's oftentimes in 1 Timothy. Can I be honest with you? I, before becoming your senior pastor, I didn't pay attention to this topic of false teaching. I didn't really have a reason to, I don't guess, but I didn't pick up on the repetitive nature of this message, this warning about false teachers. Sure, I saw them. I put them in the back of my mind. That's just something in the Bible. It doesn't really matter as much. That's, that's, those are my thoughts, you know, until I became your senior pastor. But since then, God has been opening my eyes to the importance of this sub-theme of protecting and battling the truth, battling for the truth, this holding to what God is telling us in his words to us. And I attribute this to God's continuing work in my life, growing me as a Christian and as a pastor, but I also believe that it um, comes from my, my love for you. I look out at you guys, and my heart is full. I am thankful for you this morning, and I have affection for you. But my love for you is much more than just appreciation and affection. Thomas Aquinas, the pre-Reformation Catholic theologian, he defines love this way. Love is the choice to will the good of the other. Basically, love is wanting the best for the other. To understand, in order to understand love, we must define good. What is love without good? It's not love. So what is good? As you can see, this quickly becomes an ethical and philosophical question, but it doesn't stay there for the Christian. Because Christians, we have the Bible as our authority over our ethics 
and our philosophy. Good is given to us ultimately in the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the highest good. Jesus is revealed to us in the Bible. My love for you has at its foundation this. Wanting this for you, Jesus is revealed in the Bible. The book of the Bible, this, this Bible, your Bible, is a book, but it's not about you. God is the main character of the Bible, and even in the story of life that's unfolding around you, God is the main character. It is spiritually unhealthy for us to put ourselves inside the pages of the Bible because the book The Bible is a book of many stories telling one big story, and that's the story of God rescuing people like you and me. The Bible is primarily about Jesus. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament is about Jesus. They either uh, point us to Jesus, they detail the ministry, the life of Jesus, or they instruct the church on how to live as Jesus' followers. Nowhere in the Bible do we have the freedom to insert our life or our struggles as part of the narrative of Scripture. For instance, we don't read the story of David and Goliath and see ourselves as David trying to defeat a Goliath with our stones of faith. The Bible doesn't put you and it doesn't put me, it doesn't put us at the center stage defeating giants of debt, bad relationships, crummy bosses, or empty checkbooks. Your faith, our faith, is in Jesus, not our ability to defeat giants. Jesus is the hero of every story in the Bible. You're probably thinking, Gary, this has nothing to do with 1 Timothy 6. It does, I promise. I'll get there. I just laid out for you, though, a common false teaching that is running around this region and online. It's everywhere. It's preached. It's in Christian music. You and your ability to have faith is not the point of the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is about protecting God, is about God protecting God's people from an impossible enemy of God. This story points us to Jesus and his ability to alone to defeat the impossible enemy of sin and death. You might have heard the term exegesis. It's in your notes. This is what I attempt to do with you each week. Exegesis is the process of explaining the text as it is written. My attempt is to take the Bible and to explain its clear and original meaning to you. That's exegesis. It's explaining the original meaning of Scripture. There's another term, eisegesis. Now, this is something that we should be, should be watching out for because by nature we probably do it without realizing it. And we probably do it without realizing the dangerous implications of eisegesis. Eisegesis is when we put our own meaning onto a text in the Bible. Eisegesis is where we come to the Bible and we insert a preconceived idea that we have onto the text of Scripture. Maybe we were taught it growing up. Maybe a social media influencer has spoke it on the internet and we like what we heard and so without trying to look it up or discover if it's truth, we just put it onto scripture. 
as if it is truth because it makes us feel good. So we take something and insert its meaning into the text, and we walk away from the Bible thinking it says what we wanted it to say from the beginning. This is a big danger in topical approaches to preaching. It's also what happens when we give a verse a meaning by itself when it's taken from its context. So that's eisegesis. Then there's this this third term that I just discovered over the past couple of weeks, and it's not really a word yet, but it should be. This third term is narcissus, taken from the term narcissist and exegesis. Narcissus is where we come to a Bible passage and we insert ourselves into the Bible narrative. We insert our situation on top of that of the story that's in the Bible. Narcissus is what I mentioned earlier in the narrative of David and Goliath. Narcissus is a common preaching strategy, teachers, and it's wrong. The Bible is not a book about you. It's a book about God. And when we come to the Bible and we read the Bible, we learn about God and we learn about its hero, Jesus. This is what Paul is telling Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's telling Timothy, teach the Bible. Teach the doctrines that come out of the Bible, not the ones that we put on the Bible. Don't change the meaning of Jesus' words to fit the story that you want him to tell. And you know, pastors are to teach what the Bible says, not what we want it to say. Pastors are to exegete, not eisegete, and certainly not narcegete the Bible. Now I realize that I'm making some bold and challenging statements this morning, and maybe a little nerdy ones. Maybe you haven't thought along these lines very much, and when you saw these words in your bulletin, you're like, oh, brother, what are we going to set through? <clears throat> I realize that I'm making these bold statements, and they are bold, and they're, they're difficult to say without thinking through the implications of, of, of what you're thinking. My intention is not to harm you or to hurt you or to cause hurt this morning. <clears throat> My intention is to point you to Jesus and to explain the Bible as it in its original meaning. I've prayed for us this week that, that all of us would come to the scriptures this morning and let God's word speak to us, even if it challenges us. My words are coming from my love for you, my wanting the best for you. But I realize that I am kicking at Bible Belt culture. And that's what culture does. It eisegetes. Bible Belt culture reads the Bible through the Bible Belt lens oftentimes. And we're, we've spent 16 weeks in Jude, or we will have spent 16 weeks in Jude and 1 Timothy, where there's this major theme of dealing with false teachers. The Bible does not treat false teachers kindly because the truthfulness of God's word, his words matter. The way you and I live out the truthfulness of God's word matters. Here's something that's going to be difficult for Bible book Bible Belt culture to understand. All that claims to be Christian is not Christian. 
all that claims to be Christian isn't Christian. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Because if we're not thinking, if we don't have that truthfulness in our mind, we are open to being swayed by false teachers. I've been speaking with our staff over the past couple of weeks about how do we lead and protect the truthfulness of God and this church in light of the teaching that's found in Jude and in 1 Timothy. For me, as your senior pastor, we just can't simply read the Bible and hear the message that Jude and 1 Timothy has, get these types of warnings, and do nothing. Paul continues in chapter 6 that some of these who teach falsely have an unhealthy craving for controversy that produces envy, dissension, evil suspicions, and creates friction among the church. Now, many of us live lives full of drama. It's just the way some of us live, and living in drama is not the same as causing drama, especially if you're a teacher or a pastor. And so when a pastor leads into something that might start drama or create conflict, it had better be for the sake of the Bible or for the lordship of Jesus or something that matters that comes out of Scripture. And it should never be over preferences or personality. It's easy to disagree with ministry philosophy or against the personality type. Those things can easily divide and they create controversy. Those are the things I'm not interested in when I speak of are to protect us against false teaching. It's the content of the teaching that matters. What is being taught? How is God's word being handled? That's, what's ma- that's what matters. The Bible as it is taught. The truth of the Bible will protect us from false teachers. In your notes, the truth of the Bible will protect us from false teachers. I've heard many of you quote a pastor that most of us know and we love. And he says, and the quote is this, knowing the Bible will make you unfit for a lot of preaching. Our former pastor here at White Plains, Phil Rogers, has said this, and as your current pastor, I am glad that he says this. I am glad that he said, and I agree with him. I'm so glad he says this because, because he said this, and you guys repeat it to me often, it tells me that we have a church, we have church history, and acknowledgement that knowing the Bible is essential for discernment. I totally agree with Phil, and I'm thankful for his ministry here. And knowing the Bible will make you unfit for a lot of preaching around here and online. Absolutely. Knowing the Bible will help you process the hard things that I've been saying this morning. So what does the Bible say? God created everything, and he created it good. Humanity was created in the image of God and designed for a special relationship with God. Sin destroys that special relationship with God. We all sin. You and I, we sin. Every character in the Bible, except for one, sins. Jesus alone is the one who doesn't sin. Jesus, who is God, came to earth as a human to fix what the law and Israel, through its priests, judges, and kings, couldn't do. Jesus 
is the better lawkeeper. In fact, he is the only perfect lawkeeper. Jesus doesn't break the law. In his love for you, Jesus fulfills the law. That's his words to us. He fulfills the law. Jesus lived a life that you couldn't live. He died a death that your life deserves. Jesus didn't stay dead, though. Three days after he died on the cross, Jesus was resurrected, proving he was who he said he was, and he can do what he said he can do. Our life is in response to this. Our life is in response to what the Bible says. And in fact, every one of us, every person in this community, every person on this earth lives in response to this gospel message. When we put our trust in Jesus based on the Bible's testimony of him, and we live under his authority of our lives, we are reunited with God in that special relationship. We will be in that special relationship with God forever, the way that God intended. Jesus is victorious over sin and death. Jesus gives you life and purpose. The final book of the Bible points back to the first book of the Bible. It all started in a garden, and it will all end in a garden. And Jesus is central to all of it. This is what the Bible says. Jesus is the hero. He is the one that we follow. He is the one that we imitate. So how do we live in response to this message, to this, this grand, it's not by imitating David, David will fail you. It's not by imitating Moses, Moses will fail you. It's not by anybody else in the Bible except for Jesus is the one to imitate. He will never fail you. Jesus. To imitate Jesus, though, we must know Jesus, and we must know about Jesus. This is why we need to know, study, and exegete the Bible correctly. To take the Bible from its original, to take from the Bible its original intention for you. As you read, study, and understand the Bible, you can know better how to respond to God and his great love for you. Live like Jesus. Strive to respond to God's rescuing of you and your soul by living like Jesus. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Live and worship in a way that proclaims the gospel, the story of the Bible. 
and do so with contentment. Why? Because it's enough. The gospel is enough. God's saving work throughout the history of creation and in your own life is enough to be enamored with him for an eternity's future. In your notes, live like God is better. Live like God is better. Now, this is a message to pastors as much as it is to church members. Remember, this letter was written to a pastor. Paul is writing to Timothy, and pastors, including myself and those in this region and those online, need to live like God is better. Better than what? Everything else. You and I, especially me, we need to live like God is better. Insert whatever you want to. We must live, preach, and teach like God is better. We must be content with God and Him alone. Now there's real temptation for churches to not be content with God alone. We are tempted, churches, to be the biggest, the most influential, or the coolest church in town or online. Pastors, if they're willing to teach something other than the Bible, will quickly look to others and follow their lead and attempt to build a church or an online platform or anything else on something other than the Bible as it was originally intended. Now, these pastors will use the tactics of eisegesis and narcissus to build a following because people want to hear that kind of stuff. People like to hear that. They want to hear how they can defeat the giants in their life. The message of the Bible is that Jesus defeats the giants. Trust Jesus. Rest in Jesus. False teachers aren't content with this, according to 1 Timothy, because that message doesn't pay the best. Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, remember, we're, we're reading a book written to a pastor. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Our theme here in this passage is that false teachers will not be content with the gospel message alone because they want more. They teach to go after riches. Did you know that the path to riches for preachers is relatively easy if you're willing to compromise on teaching the Bible alone? Let me give you a quick example of how to narcissize a text and how that can give its hearers the wrong understanding and help a pastor build an empire. The passage will be up on your screen. It's Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8 says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your... For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, if you memorize this passage, this one verse, and put your faith into it, and you insert yourself as the beneficiary of it, then you're going to be narcissizing this text in a way to get a meaning that is not what it was intended to mean. If I preach this verse to you, and I encourage you to read the Bible, 
for success and gain, then I will be teaching to you falsely. You'll be trusting God for earthly success by your attempt to study and know the Bible. We often look to God for earthly success because we aren't content with the gospel alone. This passage in Joshua isn't a promise for you. It's a promise to Joshua, who just took over the reins immediately after the death of Moses. The people of Israel are still wandering around in the wilderness after the Exodus, and their leader Moses had just died. Now, it would be hard to be the guy who follows in leadership after Moses. Joshua is that new leader, and God is pointing Joshua back to the law to remind him of the promises he made to Moses and the people who are still wandering around. God will provide salvation, rescue, and a land for the people he brought out of Egypt. That's what this passage is saying. That is exegeting the text. The wealthiest pastor in Nigeria has a net worth of over $150 million. And he has used Joshua 1.8, And he has it listed on his church's website as one of his church's 12 pillars. Basically, believe these 12 things and God's going to do things for us. He teaches that this passage teaches us to expect success. That is false teaching. And that is at the heart of the health and wealth prosperity gospel that has built many false teachers unusual wealth. It's effective because people want to hear it. People want to feel like they have some supernatural ability or promise to gain great wealth. Paul tells Timothy, be content. Be content with the food and clothing that you have. In your notes, pastors who go after riches will lead their churches and followers into ruin and destruction. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that wealthy pastors must be false teachers, but if a pastor has great wealth and he lives like he enjoys that wealth and you watch his teaching online, be careful. Use discernment. Read the Bible that he's teaching from. Don't just take his words at face value. It's important to note that this passage... It's a passage about the love of money being the roots, the roots of all kinds of evil, is in the context of pastoral advice given from Paul to Timothy. Yes, greed is sinful. And yes, money, the love of money can lead to all kinds of evil practices. But this passage is directed to Timothy about pastors who love money. It goes back to Paul's qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3.3. A pastor should not be a lover of money. As we close, perhaps you've been captivated by a false teacher. Maybe your eyes are beginning to open and you realize that you may have been listening to someone who's telling you things the Bible doesn't tell you. Don't feel bad. Don't feel embarrassed for following after things in our culture, the things that our culture says that we should chase after, and then you found a pastor who encourages you to do the same thing and uses the Bible 
to re reinforce those ideas and those thoughts. I would guess every one of us have done that. Have at times wanted the Bible to tell us things that the Bible simply doesn't say. Don't feel bad. Don't feel embarrassed. But recognize that the Bible does speak to us. And thank God for his continued growth in us to better understand what the Bible means. Strive and to know and to understand that the Bible speaks to us. Understand it better. Join us on Wednesdays as we begin the Growing in Christ Discipleship Study. Be aware if you're bringing a preconceived notion to a Bible passage. Again, we probably all do this. Recognize when we insert ourselves into the biblical narrative. Strive to understand the Bible on its own terms, as it says what it says alone. To remind you, I love you. And this message this morning has been from that place of love for you. This morning I felt like I was angry or upset sometimes, and I'm not. Not at all. I told Cooper, Lacey, and Heather this week as I was doing sermon prep, I was like, man, I feel like this sermon is going to be an angry sermon, and I don't, and I don't mean for it to be. I, I am not angry by any means. But I think I felt this way because, because I do love you, and I do want the best for you. God, Jesus, as the Bible tells us who he is. I have great love for you, and I have a, a huge responsibility to teach you God's word as God's word is. My love for you has this foundation that Jesus has revealed to you in the Bible. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. And throughout this series in 1 Timothy, I've brought our attention to Romans 6.23. The guy who wrote Romans is the guy who wrote 1 Timothy. And in Romans 6.23, he says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Without Jesus, you will die. Not just the physical death that we all have, but you will, be, you will die spiritually as well. You'll be separated from all that is good and loving for a future forever. That's the death that sin brings, separation from God and goodness. But God gives you grace in the free gift of Jesus. In Jesus, you will have life even after death. Life everlasting awaits those who follow Jesus and make him the Lord and center of their life. Will you follow Jesus today? Will you submit to his authority over your life? We're going to sing a moment, a moment, a song of invitation. What it means to follow Jesus or how to live your life like you are a Christian. This is a time for you to come forward and pray or you can come and speak to me. You can do so. You can pray in your seat. Are you following Jesus? Does your life look like it? Will you stand as we pray? God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for meaning something when you tell us in your word. Help us to approach your word looking for what you mean for us to get from it. Keep us from putting our own meaning onto it. Keep us from putting ourselves in it. 
for Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Every passage, Jesus is the hero. Help us to live a life that reflects that Jesus is the hero. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.